A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites, and this is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and first I want to summarize the long and extended uh, Sukkah season tours. I had some great tours, both Yad Vashem and some um, Kivrei Tzadikim, Old City, the Machne Yehuda Shuk, all over Yerushalayim, and a lot of Friends, friends, friends who brought other friends, a lot of Jewish history of Soundbites listeners, and all kinds of people, prominent members of society. I uh, had a principal of a base Yaakov in Lakewood, had some big, um, uh, big people in Jewish life, and just regular families who are here for Sukkot and wanted to go around. I always thought I was the only one who likes to hang around uh, Jewish cemeteries. Apparently, there's a lot of other people like that. It's actually quite inspiring when you bring around some of these people who, again, the quality of, of Jewish history sound like listeners or just uh, anyone who um, who takes me around, uh, to people who knew quite a bit, did a Harazesim tour and a close friend, uh, Davi Safir, who knew quite a bit about almost every cover we we bumped into on Harzaisim, even the ones that I didn't plan on talking about. With another friend of mine, Simcha Shechter from Baltimore, knew basically every member of the Kailal Prushim in the 19th century in Yerushalayim and Harzaisim. And again, a lot more than I myself knew. He he knew it like uh, like I know about uh, about Velazhin or Mir Yeshiva. But in any event, and, and it was also inspiring. Some some people I brought, um, you know, one of the heads of the Aguda in 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 America, who's who's telling me the whole way there. He's telling me about the upcoming Siyamashas. But once we get to the Bnei Brak, uh, Beis Sakvaris, he's telling me about all the great uh, rabbis who he knew personally, and he had a connection with, and he was able to tell me about Rabban Leib Steinman, how he was in the room when he was uh, upgraded to become the uh, leader of the Gadol Hadar. Um, I was privileged to take around a Ralph Hertzka, one of the great uh, supporters of Tyra. And as and as I'm trying to tell him stories about the different people around this um, Beis Akvaris that we went to together, he's tell, sharing stories 
very inspiring stories uh, with me of the different rabbis he knew and uh, had a personal connection with over the years. Even great people like Rav Moshe, who to me seem like legends, and it's someone who he know personally and was able to tell me about different halachic shilas that he asked him about, about which hand uh, to put on tefillin and so on. And it was it was really great. So and families from Muncie, from from Brooklyn, from all over, and uh, I know that doesn't sound like all over, but it was really from all over, and uh, looking forward to doing many more, which brings me to the topic at hand today. Um, the, the, the When I start planning the winter tours to Europe, and one of the names that comes up on almost every tour possible, especially if it's in Poland, but usually anytime we mention Hasidus, um, is the one whose yard site is right around now, the Piazetsna Rebbe, Rebbe Kleinimus Kalman Shapiro, and he's definitely one of the top five in the neo-Hasidic movement of today, along with Rebbe Nachman and the Ishbitzer and a couple of the other ones. And he's always he's the only one who we don't go to his cover on the tours. We always speak about him, we always talk about him, but we don't go to his cover, and the reason is because he doesn't have one. He's murdered by the Nazis in Travniki, during an operation that was pretty much the uh, the summary of the massacre of Polish Jewry, Aktion Enternfest, Operation Harvest Festival, November 3rd and 4th, 1943, where the Nazis murdered 42,000 Jews in Majdanek, in Ponyatava, and in Travniki, and a couple other smaller places. And that's when the Piazetsner Rebbe meets his end, and of course in these mass graves, which eventually the bodies are burned, there's nothing remains. There's no Eihel. There's no, you know, There's no Mikvah. We don't go to, like all the other people we go to, we don't have that opportunity by the Piyatzetz Narebbe. So it's kind of tragic in, in his ending, the way he died, Al-Kiddush Hashem, after he survived the Warsaw Ghetto and he's deported to the Travniki concentration camp at the end of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. So his yard site is obviously either Hay or Vav Cheshven because in 1943, November 3rd and 4th, was Hay and Vav Cheshven. I think a lot of the calendars say Hay. Perhaps someone knows that he was actually killed on the first day of the Aktia. I don't know if that's true, but it's either Hay or Vav, so it's right around now. And I just want to clear up a bit of the mythology surrounding the time of the Piyatzes uh, Nerebbe, both in the Warsaw Ghetto and his death and his writings. I definitely am not going to do, like I repeat many, many times on this a podcast. I'm not going to do an analysis of his derech, of his way of thought, of his Torah, because there's a lot of other great people out there who are much more knowledgeable than me who do so, and it's getting more and more popular today. I'm just going to give a little bit of the background of this great man and who he was and the contribution he make, made and makes, continues to make in Jewish society till today. He comes from Kuznets, Magnolitsa, Grzysk. His father's, his grandfather rather, is um his father, getting mixed up already, is Rebeli Melech of Grzysk, and he becomes first a Rebbe in Piazetsna, which is a suburb of Warsaw, and and uh, eventually becomes the Rav. He's actually the rabbi, the practicing rabbi of the community of Piazetsna. Today, if you go to Warsaw, we always, when we're in Warsaw, I point this out, Piazetsna's, the Warsaw, like many cities around the world, has grown since the um, since the war, and what was once a suburb of Warsaw is now pretty much in the city. It's not in the center of town, obviously, but it's been incorporated 
pretty much into the the greater city of Warsaw. Um, but then it was a suburb, but close enough. And he's, you know, he's a, what we would call a miyuchis. He comes from the great Kozhnitzer Magid and is, comes from Grodzisk, which was a major Hasidus in Poland, thousands of Hasidim. And he becomes the Piyatetsna Rebbe, being that he's the Rav and the Rebbe in Piyatetsna from quite a young age. His father passed away when he was um, his 20s and he becomes the Rebbe. And following World War One, an interesting thing happens. Uh, the post-World War One era, the interwar period, especially in places like Poland, and especially in a great big city like Warsaw, there's a massive uh, secularization and abandoning of Jewish tradition and way of life. And he sees it, and he's one of those who decides to act on it. Um, and he decides to dedicate, very unlike most Rebbes of his day or any period of of history in Hasidus, he decides to dedicate himself to Jewish education. And in a very, almost a modern way, he was a bit knowledgeable, he knew some languages, he had well read, he knew some, he, you know, he read even non-traditional sources, we'll keep it at that. And he, and he um, had a very modern look at education. He opens a yeshiva called Das Moshe, named after his father-in-law. And he opens the yeshiva in Warsaw. He doesn't open it in Piyasetsna. And he essentially moves to Warsaw. He had already been there, like many other rebbes, during World War I. And he decides to stay there. And he goes back to Piyasetsna very little, like for the Yom Toivim, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, gives speeches there every once in a while. And even though he's officially the Rav and the Rebbe in Piyasetsna, but he considered his, considers his main calling to be education, shiurim, Rosh Hashiva, and he spends and lives essentially in Warsaw. So that's an interesting point. Um, you know, despite the fact that he's maintaining both positions till the war begins. He writes a very, he writes quite a few Sfarim, Tzavaziru, Zanachshar, Tzavreichim, and a bunch of other Sfarim also, but one of his most famous pre-war Sfarim becomes known as the Choyves HaTalmidim, which is a very modern look, again, at education, at seeing the youth and the student for who he is and speaking them at, to them at their level and understanding their world, which today is taken for granted, hopefully. And, and, um, and uh, in those days, was not necessarily taken for granted. So, so the, the, the idea that he was, had, was trailblazing new trends, not trailblazing, there were other people at the time, um, taking these trends in education was very modern, was very different, especially for a Rebbe, very progressive in a certain way. And what's even more ironic is that you're in a big major city like Warsaw, there's one of the most famous Jewish-Polish educators in the world, um, Janusz Korczak, who was originally Henrik Goldschmidt, which is his Jewish name, an assimilated Jew. Uh, he was, they say he was 100% Polish and 100% Jewish. He later attained fame by uh, you know, accompanying his entire orphanage onto the train to Treblinka, which is another story, um, perhaps for another time. But Janusz Korczak, who was much older than the P.S.S. Nareva, about, about 15, 20 years or so, he was famous in Warsaw as a modern educator at the same time. So you have here two people in Warsaw, and Janusz Korczak is world-renowned. He's Dr. Janusz Korczak, has written books, he leads seminars, he's a very, very famous educator, Runs orphanages, orphanages, and he's he's you know like I said he's well entrenched in Polish society and Jewish the elite of Jewish society, 
And at the same time, the Pietist Rebbe in the same exact city is, has very similar educational ideals and ideas that Yanush Korchak has, which is a bit of a coincidence, I would say. The war comes, and his wife had died already before the war. So he was a widower, and he had two children, a son and a daughter. His son and daughter-in-law, along with his aunt and his mother, are all killed in the initial bombing of Warsaw, which is very tragic. You know, the, the bombing of Warsaw is a battle. It's not the Holocaust. It's not the final solution. And here, they're killed during the, the essentially the Battle of Warsaw at different, different stages. Um, but over that month or so of the, really the beginning of the war, and they, they're, they're, they become the, pretty much of the first victims of World War II. And he's left almost without a family. His, his daughter is, is his, Son-in-law are later killed during the Great Deportation from the Warsaw Ghetto in 1942 and killed there, killed at Treblinka. But he's almost without a family. Um, I always point out to my uh, groups, we go to the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, and here you go, we always talk about how there's no kever of the Piazzetz Nerebbe, but then ahead we go through the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, we come to an area where there's his wife who dies before the war and his son and daughter-in-law who are killed during the bombings at the beginning of the war, but they get a normal Jewish burial in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, in the Akapava, famous and huge Jewish cemetery where so many people are buried. And the three of them are next to each other, and at least two, I think all three of them, say his name on it. They say, you know, his wife, the wife of the PSS and Rebbe of Klenimus Kalman Shapiro, Shlita, who's still alive. And same thing with his son, he's the son of the PSS and Rebbe of Klenimus Kalman Shapiro, Shlita. And here you go, you have his name on a matzeva with the word Shlita, that he's still alive, even though he himself never got a kever, he's not buried there, but his name is on a matzeva somewhere, and that, I think, is a poignant and, and a powerful uh, thing to see, and, and, and I, I like to point it out to the groups, and it's definitely another opportunity to talk about the Piazzetz Nerebbe. So he talks to his Hasidim in the Warsaw Ghetto, and uh, in Warsaw, after the war begins, the Warsaw Ghetto is only set up in November 1940, over a year later, but also in, in the Warsaw during the war, during the years of the Warsaw Ghetto. And he talks to them. He gives Shabbos afternoon talks. He takes notes of his talks after Shabbos, and he writes them down. The Ringelblum archive finds out about his, uh, his, uh, his talks to his Hasidim, and they're very inspirational, um, you know, talking about all the issues that, that, are, that are challenges to his Hasidim during this terrifying and terrible time. Um, about Amuna, about hope, about Golas, about punishment, about Tzachar and Oynish, about all the ideas that are, that, that are challenges that they're really facing during this time. And he's trying to inspire them and trying to give them hope and trying to push them in. And it deals with it in a, sometimes in a very harsh way also, about asking questions and, and facing the questions and, and, and what's going to happen in the future and what's the future of the Jewish people and what's going to be with Jewish children and how is God allowing this to happen and things that were, would not be a standard Hasidic talk of Shalashudis in regular times all of a sudden become the Shalashudis talk and I don't know how much herring and exile were there but it was the Shalashudis talk and it was, it was Hasidus in a different way and, and, and he's trying to give that message to Hasidim, and, and, and some of it may be even hard reading, and to a certain extent, the original version was a bit censored. Um, a new version actually came out quite recently, which is, which is even better, with notes and explanations, background context, and the most amazing thing about it, and at least from a historical perspective, is that he dated the shmuz and the talks that he gave. He dated them. And when he dates them, you see 
the story of the Warsaw Ghetto. Why? Because we tr- tend, especially when we speak about the general Holocaust, the ghettos, we tend to just, you know, make it a hodgepodge of information without making a distinction when it took place. And even within the context of the ghetto, it's very important to know when it took place. There's a big difference between the ghetto in 1940 and 1941. And there's a big difference in 1941 and 1942. Huge differences. And when we don't make those distinctions, we lose the nuance. We lose the appreciation for what the story was. And here through his talks, we can see the degeneration of the Warsaw Ghetto. We can see the starvation and the death around them hitting them. We see how 1940 is different than 1940. We see that the messages that he chooses to give to, give to his Hasidim change gradually through time as, as time goes on. He himself is spared the great deportation of the Warsaw Ghetto by working in the Schultz shop. Schultz was a German industrialist who ran this shop, but it was originally owned by a Gerich Hasid named Avram, Avram Hendlis. And what Avram Hendlis, who actually survived the war and talked about it after the war, he did in this shop, that since he was the manager under German administration, they kept the owner as the manager, he tried to employ as many rabbis as he could. Um, it eventually came to be nicknamed the Rabbi's Workshop. He employed at one point about 400 Rabbanim, Rebbes, Rashi Yeshiva, Hasidim in his workshop. The Alexander Rebbe, and the Sachat Shavar Rebbe, and Ramesh Betzal Alter, and the Menachem Zemba, and all, just go on and on. The amount of rabbis and Rebbes and Sadiqim and, 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 and Gedoyle Yisrael who were in the Warsaw Ghetto is literally endless. And the Piyatesner was one of those. And he actually lives through the entire period of the ghetto all the way to the uprising. And it's at the end of the uprising when the Nazis crush the uprising and drag the last Jews out of their bunkers to, um, to, um, to, to be deported, is that's when he's taken out. During the entire time of the Warsaw Ghetto, he had given these talks. Now, what did he do with those talks? He, the, there was a famous archive in the Warsaw Ghetto, the Ringelblum archive, the man, Dr. Emanuel Ringelblum, the famous Jewish historian, um, but the archive was actually called the Oynik Shabbos archive, and one mem- some member of the archive contacted the Piyatetzner Rebbe and asked him to contribute his writings to the archive, and that's how they were preserved. Now, I'll get back to that in a second, but he eventually is deported to Travniki, like I said. He has an opportunity to escape, like Ringelblum himself, who actually was did escape from Travniki, um, but he didn't. Um, un- unclear why. Could be that he didn't want to escape when others were still there. It's, it's a little bit unclear. And he's killed in Entenfest, like I mentioned, with no kever on uh, November 3rd or 4th, 1943. So what happened to the Ringelblum archive? What happens to his writings? So he, he um, Ringelblum himself doesn't survive. Um, over the 60 members of the archive, which... I would love one day to actually devote a, a episode to the Ringelblum archive. It's a fascinating story, but um, but two members of the archive do survive. Over sixty members of the archive and many many more contributors. None of them survive. Rachel Eurbach and Hirsch Wasser, the two members of the Hirsch and Bluma, his wife also survive. They they go in 1946. Over a year after the war is over, they get some funding. They dig and they find the first cachet of the archive. Over 10 metal containers, the first shift of the archive that was buried during the great Aksia 
during the uh, Great Deportation of the Warsaw Ghetto, and they have a huge amount of information. But they did not find the second part of the archive. Four years later, in 1950, there's a group of Polish construction workers who are doing construction project. As is known, the entire city of Warsaw was destroyed during the war, not just the ghetto area, which was systematically destroyed, but actually the entire city was destroyed during the Polish uprising, not the Polish, I'm sorry, the Warsaw uprising, not the Warsaw ghetto uprising in April of 1943, but rather in August 1944, over a year later, the Polish resistance rose up in an urban uprising against the Nazis in 63 days, if I'm not mistaken, um, an uprising, and when the Nazis finally crush it, Heinrich Himmler, the chief of the SS, gives an order to wipe the city of Warsaw off the face of the earth. And it is systematically destroyed. So there's nothing left of Warsaw, there's a lot of construction going on in the late 40s and early 50s. So there's a group of construction workers, and they're working in the area of the ghetto, and they find two, two, two I think, huge metal uh, um, uh, milk, metal, metal milk cans, containers. And they say, oh, this is from the Warsaw Ghetto. For sure, the Jews who lived in Warsaw, they buried gold there. So they go looking inside, and it's just papers. <laughs> Jews, all they hit was papers. What's going on? They're about to throw it away, dump it out, burn it, get rid of it. And the Polish foreman, who we don't even know who he is till today, but he saved history. The Polish foreman, he says, wait. If they buried them in milk cans, then they might be valuable. Let's give it to the remnants of the Warsaw Jewish community. Let's give it to the Jewish Historical Institute, which had already been set up in Warsaw. And let's give it to them. And he hands it over to them. And what do we find in the second cachet that's buried of the Ringelblum archive? First of all, all of Ringelblum's writings, other diaries, huge amount of information from the Judenrat of Warsaw. Tons of, so much what we know was buried in the second cachet of the archive, buried at a later time. Uh, before the uprising, and what do you know, lo and behold, there are writings from the Piyotets and the Rebbe, and that's what Eish Kaidish came from. So there you go, a anonymous Polish uh, foreman of a construction site saved the Eish Kaidish in 1950. It's published by a student of his, I think a guy named Duv Devani in 1960, who, the group of his, remnant of his Hasidim, who published it, they, they decide to name it Eish Kaidish, um, and it becomes a very popular sefer. Um, his the the Piyutzetz the Rebbe actually had a brother um, who who uh, who had who was who was a they called him the Admor Hachalutz, Reb Shaya Shapiro, and he Admor Hachalutz means he was the pioneer. He was a he was a member of the Mizrahi. He was a Zionist, and he had moved to Eretz Yisrael before the war. And he had a son named Rebeli Melech. He had another son who was. Yuska Shapiro, who was a minister in the in the Knesset of the, of, of the Mafdal, the Mizrahi, but his brother Rabbi Melech Shapiro was encouraged by the Beis Yisrael of Ger, who one of his life missions, the Beis Yisrael's life missions, was to rebuild um, the Hasidic courts that had been wiped out, and he actually pushed many of the rebbes and courts that we know of today. Some of which remained very small, some of which, like bells, became very big, and and he really pushed that they should be rebuilt and we should not give up on a single court of Hasidus that was destroyed. We should try to build up every single one. And he asked this nephew of the Piyotetzna Rebbe to start again the Piyotetzna Hasidus. Very limited success in an actual Hasidus in the normative sense of the word. His son uh, lives right near me in Beit Shemesh. Um, his son, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. Um, sorry, Rabbi, uh, 
Menachem Shapiro. Could be even Reb Kalman Shapiro. I don't, I don't remember his first name. I'm sorry. He lives right near me in, in Beit Shemesh, and he has a shul um, called Eish Kaidish. You know, he's the great nephew. He goes with a nice Polish Hispanic, and he's officially the Piyatetz Nareba. And um, there you go. There's some something left of the Hasidus, but his popularity is way beyond just um, a Hasidic court at this point. His, his, it's worldwide. It's very, very popular. In fact, there was a Hasid in Tel Aviv, uh, one of the good old Polish Hasidim, a nice clean-shaven uh, Hasid living in Tel Aviv, who was a Hasid of the Piyatetz Nareba, and he just died just a couple of years ago. They put out a book about him in Hebrew called HaChasid HaAcharon, the last Hasid, about the last known Hasid of the Piyatetz Nareba. So there's a little bit of a remnant around, and he just seems to be gaining in popularity more and more. So next tour that we do, looking forward to you joining us. We'll talk about the Piyatetzner, we'll talk about Warsaw, we'll talk about Ringublum, we'll talk about Hasidus, we'll go all over Europe and learn about our past. So don't forget to join us. And this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. And for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips, subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode of the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.